Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Derek, the CTO of Alteryx, and we discuss why the organizational change journey is a huge withdrawal from the organizational trust bank, the importance of over-communicating when you're going through something new, and how their flagship product, Alteryx Designer, automates the process of data prep and analytics. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. What's the last year been like for you? Uh, you know, the, obviously everybody's had their challenges on the personal front, you know, just trying to adjust to the new norm. Company-wise, it's been, you know, a pretty good adjustment for us. It, it hasn't been extremely difficult. We had a bias towards you know physical location proximity and i think that's had to evolve as like everybody else as we had to adjust that expectation so i think work-wise it's been really interesting the one thing that i really appreciate about our our ceo since you and i last talked our founder ceo retired back in october we got a new ceo in that same time frame Uh, he was super big on basically empowering displaced workers during covid uh, and so we launched this program called Adapted Alteryx, which basically means if you're a displaced worker, you can get access to free training and the software for free to kind of reskill. So one thing I loved about it is we didn't kind of suffer ourselves in the process. We try to do much more around engaging with community to, to do something more meaningful. Uh, and that was something that he led. And our new CEO, uh, Mark Anderson's continued to kind of press forward in terms of just like, we talk about the democratization of you know machine learning that really big on continual education upskilling the knowledge worker all that stuff and a lot of folks have extra time right now or they had extra time especially during the heart of covid to to spend time kind of ramping up their skill sets some of them forced to because they had been displaced so professionally it's been great you know a great learning experience i think for everybody on how to adjust when things change personally it's, it's been the roller coaster i'm sure everybody else has been on Right. But you were really strong. I was reviewing the the notes from our last conversation and you do a great job too on LinkedIn of like pushing out content. You know, I'll see you, I'll scroll through the feed and I'll see something that you've put out there. And it just reminds me, it's like, oh, Derek's awesome. I'll screenshot that, sent it to Adam. And I was like, we need to talk to Derek again. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be talking to you. I'm trying to keep up with how much content you're putting out, man. It's uh, your content rhythm is amazing. I don't have the, the luxury of commuting to work anymore either. I always, you know, to, to listen to a couple of them on the way to work. So I'm having to find time outside of that to connect. But man, you've interviewed a ton of people. So kudos to you. Awesome. Awesome. Um, did Jake and them reach out to you and tell you that we wanted to talk about change, like organizational change management? Yeah, because uh, I think I had suggested a topic a little bit too, because we are going through a ton of it. Uh, you probably could guess that going from an install-based software company to trying to modernize that and how it changes the go-to-market, the whole organization. So tons of organizational change stuff we've been been going through and learning lots of valuable lessons. So perfect. And you have a background in that too, right? That's what you first started out early in your career at, I think, Accenture? Well, I mean, everything we did at Accenture back in the day had a change element to it typically because we weren't doing small things. I mean, it'd be multi-million dollar transformations. And so the change element was critical in that. Uh, so I think I learned through school hard knocks on how to do it, not to do it. Uh, we had a, a bunch of failings uh, when I was at Accenture on not appreciating uh, the end users as n- enough during the change process of a new system introduction that I think I learned some valuable lessons. That really wasn't my charter, but we created what we thought was really amazing tech. 
you know, we satisfied all the user requirements. We were really architecturally sound. We rolled the solution out to end users and they hated it because they weren't engaged correctly on the change process. They didn't understand. They said the business didn't understand their actual use cases. Uh, and so we had a revolt against this amazing technical system we created because it was solving the wrong problems. Uh, and I saw a few of those during my time at Accenture that I was like, well, you better get smart on this because you can deny the fact that that's not my, my area. I'm the, I'm the tech guy. Like, Just tell me what to build and I'll build it. That's up to you all. But everybody wants to create product that their customers love. And when you're seeing that we're failing on understanding the user, understanding the adoption curve, and so the product's not getting used, the system's not getting used, that's hard. Uh, and so I started getting super engaged in all the John Cotter books on leading change and trying to really understand the change journey. Uh, so I could make sure when I was making technical decisions, I was, I was asking those questions of my product counterparts on, you know, what have you talked about in terms of user scenarios? What problems are they trying to solve? Versus just saying, hey, I'm going to come up with my own sets of requirements and then hoping when you throw it up against the wall, the system sticks. Just seeing that fail too much. Were there tools? So like the reason why I'm interested in this is it sounded super ambiguous, like organizational change management. You know, these categories, I always try to like pluck them apart and figure out what are they actually doing. You know, often you go to websites for these tools or these topics and it's, it's just not super clear for a person who's outside the industry, right? And then I was talking with Nick about it, who's like a strategy officer at this company called Biz Design, mm -hmm. and they make tools, but they have like part consultancy, but they have part tools for mapping these processes and understanding the organizations. Did these type of tools exist back in the day or was it too early for them when you were at Accenture? Oh, yeah, they didn't exist. It was, you know, Visio diagrams and Word documents and, you know, a bunch of disparate data sources trying to manage the change journey. It's gotten better. You know, I did take a look at that software because I, I saw it come up. I, it, interesting software. Boy, it solves a, it's a very broad swath of what that software is, is supposedly able to do in terms of the enterprise architectural components, the, the kind of the technical change management, kind of process change management. Uh, it's got the ambitions of doing a ton. That stuff didn't exist back in the day uh, at all. I mean, even architectural governance was, you know, on paper. Because I grew up in that enterprise architecture space and did tons of advisory there. Uh, and that was a really difficult spot to drive change into because it was an underappreciated need. So on the technical side, I think getting some more tools around this is super good. At what point, because you know this area and I, I really don't. So I'm a founder, my teams and my companies have been less than a hundred people, right? Like before I've sold them or exited or not been a part of them anymore. At what point does this like come up, this because I know how I structure teams and I, you know, move things around other CTOs, they'll have, you know, maybe a couple hundred engineers and they'll structure teams. At what point does it extract into like enterprise architecture? Well, I mean, uh, most folks are asking for enterprise architecture asking after the fact, right? Where they recognize they've got architectural drift uh, and they're trying to find a way of bringing that stuff back together. You know, back in the day, you've been around this industry long enough. There was like Togaf and Zachman and all these different models. Uh, I got my TOGAF certification, thought it was, you know, going to be this amazing thing. We struggled with adoption of just an appreciation for why enterprise architecture was important. I think to a lot of our customers at the time, it felt like an academic exercise. Uh, it stuck really well in the Fed space or the highly regulated space. Tons of traction with like, uh, you know, Fed equivalents of TOGAF and such like that. We struggled to make it stick really in the commercial side of things. Uh, despite numerous attempts, me specifically, 
I think we struggle to get people to appreciate the value of thinking about that technical change journey more holistically. Uh, I'm not sure why, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, because I've learned those lessons at Alteryx, I'm highly conscious of it. Um, or before Alteryx, I'm really conscious of trying my best to communicate the change journey around the technology and not just being a product-led thing to make sure that we're clear on when we make technical decisions, why we make them, what the technical trade-offs are, uh, what it'll enable and disable, kind of coming in eyes wide open with technical debt you're going to incur with those decisions. All that stuff becomes really important, especially in the model that we're in right now, which is in this transformational stage of going from a set of kind of install-based products that our customers absolutely love to trying to modernize and be cloud-first and you know more SaaS-oriented. That, that's a huge journey, huge transformation. So when you talk about organizational change management, think about that. I'm a developer who ships software that to customers touched once a quarter, right? So I, I have a quarter to develop it. So sense of urgency uh, was low, uh, kind of organizational commitment to cycle, like lean cycle times, having like a really quick time to value on getting stuff into the product. It suffered, but why would I do that if I'm not shipping it for three months? Like, why, why do I need to have this massive sense of urgency on things like feature cycle times, et cetera? So the tech's changing, but for us, it's a huge cultural shift on, you got to think like a SaaS company. You have to think like, hey, if I build it, I own it. Where when you install a piece of software, you're like, no, when I build it, the customer owns it. I don't have to really think about that anymore. Well, that dynamic's changing. Uh, so organizationally for us, it's been a pretty huge shift. It's amazing how software as a whole has has shifted so much that back in the day you would ship the the disc or the CDs and man getting data back on what's happening with that would be I can't even imagine it because I didn't really grow up in that world like I grew up using those tools but by the time I was owning businesses and such I grew up in like a SaaS first world so yeah like for Adobe making those pivots and I got to talk to Marty Kagan like three or four years ago about like the billion dollar Adobe pivot when they switched to a SaaS model and I can only imagine what it would have been like to uh, ship ship the physical disk out and wonder what's going on because you don't have a constant internet connection (laughs) Yeah, well, our new CTO, our CPO is from Adobe. Um, So he brings all of those, Suresh Patali, he's amazing, amazing leader. He brings all that to Alteryx, all those lessons learned, good and bad, from his time at Adobe. And he's taken a ton of products either, you know, from on-premise into the cloud, from on-premise to like a managed service offering, left it on-premise, been cloud first. So he's seen it all. Uh, he brings a lot of that knowledge and experience. Adobe's done a great job on that. I've talked to a bunch of my peers in industry around this transformational journey and how to in, embark in it. And, and the one that everybody continues to point to as being kind of a beacon of how to do it right is Adobe. I think others have struggled with that transformation. A ton of them have, uh, but Adobe is one that, that seems to have done it right. So we're really fortunate to have somebody like Suresh here now who brings all those learnings with him. Smart move. How, when you found him or were courting him and that whole process, were you directly involved with that? Or is that more of the CEO? How did, how did you figure out that you all play well together? Yeah, I was involved for sure. I mean, obviously as much as the CEO is a really, really, maybe you could argue the most important hire we were going to make given what we're going through. Right. Uh, I was involved in it, interviewed with him multiple times. Right. I think both of us were very eager to make sure there was comfort there uh, in the working relationship between us. You know, he quickly rested any concerns that I had, just given what he comes from and just his engagement style is quite amazing. I learn a ton from him on a daily basis. So it's great to have a leader in that you can just learn on a daily basis how to think about problems differently, kind of learn from the things that he's experienced in the past. Uh, and then what was great about Suresh is, you know, he joined probably a month ago. 
you know, two or three weeks ahead of that, we set a learning agenda for him that we met on a daily basis. And we spent an hour just spinning him up on stuff. So when he landed, he was, his feet were already in motion. Um, that gave him a ton of opportunity to make an impact quickly, which given the transformation time we're going through, we needed, we needed a leader that can really drive velocity into the transformation, not be, hey, talk to me in six months and I'll have a point of view. Like we were like, no, we, we need to continue to move fast. We don't have six months to let you find the bathroom for lack of a better term and then decide what you want to do. Like we got to go. Uh, and he's been just fantastic on that. He's been here a month and his knowledge in a month is, is pretty staggering. So good thing for us. Well, I've been watching your growth and it's been phenomenal. It's been insane. You guys are just like a straight, like straight up. Yeah, I think, I mean, COVID was interesting for us. I think, you know, Alteryx's go-to-market was always structured around selling into the business. Take, you know, we go sell to a, in, a knowledge worker in the business. Our, our you know, all, Alteryx designer has got amazing customer sat. Uh, you know, our MPS for the product is in the high 50s. That's insane for software. Most software is in the teens if it's lucky. So customers love the product. You give the product to a customer, they start using it, get a ton of value from it. They tell their their friends across the cube from them, they start using it. Like it was very much a department-led, kind of a, or the traditional like Tableau go-to-market motion. Uh, well, when you get to COVID, right? That don't happen anymore in COVID, right? Everything goes through central procurement, you know, budgets are tightening up. Uh, so we've had to make a pretty hard pivot on to recognizing how to sell into a much more procurement-led process than now selling into the individual departments, really important pivot for us to make. And, and COVID was definitely a forcing function for us on that. But then you take into account some of the tech transformation stuff we're going for. I think it, it accelerated the need to get the tech transformation done sooner as well. Yeah, that makes complete sense because it's a restructuring and re-education of your sales team, who, how to reach out, what the sales motions look like, the timelines, all of that. Yeah, that that's a... You guys handled it well, though. You adapted pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we've learned lessons along the way for sure. Uh, I think learning how to sell into IT. I mean, I, I was a CIO at one point. I know what it's like uh, to sell into an IT organization. I think having more appreciation for uh, the persona of an of an IT decision maker, a technical decision maker, uh, we've had to learn how to do that better. You know, how do you sell via you know the infosec office, office of the CISO? Uh, when they have you know more uh, you know higher concerns, uh, the bars higher into those organizations, then it would be selling into a department, or they can make business justifications for software procurement. You know that dynamic changes. Uh, so we spent a ton of time investing in the quality of our software, the security around our software to make that friction less for our go-to-markets. So that's been a really valuable thing for us as well. I want to talk about security in a minute, but first let's take a moment. I want to plug the software. What does it do? Why do people buy it? Yeah, so you know we have a variety of, of parts of our business. Our flagship product is Alteryx Designer. Uh, it basically takes that analytic lifecycle around acquiring data, cleansing the data, preparing it, cleansing it for an analytical outcome, and then generating that analytical outcome. It, it, it does an amazing job of that. I mean, you don't get a customer sat, you don't get a distribution like ours in customer sat or NPS in the high fifties. Uh, if you it doesn't do a really really good job of that. Uh, what you'll see when you read about Alteryx designer use cases is it's time to value. So what used to take customer, a, a person working at a customer, 100 hours in a given month to go do, uh, now takes them minutes to go do. And so that time to value means they get back a huge percentage of their time to do higher value activities, 
Uh, so we've seen a lot of really amazing stories around people who use our products getting or, you know, kind of career acceleration because of Alteryx. So I was uh, an IC working on a discrete problem. I found Alteryx. Now I'm solving all these amazing problems in a very quick fashion. I'm getting career acceleration because they're seeing how much value I'm bringing to the organization. That's why you get this almost fervent, dedicated persona around designers because just it, it's, it's changed lives for lack of a better term. That's what we love about it. Uh, the democratization of, of that analytics journey. Uh, so it, you take it out of the hands of the advanced analyst or the statistician to the everyday information worker, and they can create amazing outcomes. Whether that be a you know last mile visualization or a predictive analytics model or just generate an insight or automate a data-driven process. Like the, the tool is now in their hands and they can go do it. Uh, and the reason it's successful is because it's easy to use. It's easy to understand. That was what drives the MPS. That has been a huge, it's a huge, uh, I guess, anchor for our organization. It gives us, the, it buys us the ability to make investments to transform the tech because we have such a found, strong foundational product that customers love. That buys us kind of that collateral with customers to say, we love your products or we, we're willing to watch you all go through this transformation. Uh, very thankful we have all, the designer product kind of as our flagship piece of software. And the, the fit in the industry right now is really relevant. I mean, there's so much you know, data, data analytics happening. It's really one of the hot parts of the, the technology industry. You know, the timing for our software is really, really good. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but so for us being a small company, like 15 people, like, would there be a use case for us to use your tool or are we too small or, or at what point would a company be using it? Well, we have, we have a ton of our customers are super small, super small, small deployments. Uh, so yeah, long tail of curve, we've got a bunch of customers that are, you know, in that one to 10 seats range. So you don't have to be a massive enterprise to get value out of it. And that, that, that could be, you know, as a small footprint within a large enterprise, it could be a small footprint within a smaller enterprise. If you're ingesting a lot of data needing to drive insights, it's a great tool for that. If you're ingesting a lot of data and having to, you know, automate process around that data, it's a fantastic tool for that. If you're data limited, you don't get a lot of data, then yeah, I mean, it's a data tool. So that probably isn't a great fit. But I'm thinking of your, you know, your podcast or your, your space, your media centric space, you could ingest social media feeds and drive, you know, uh, all sorts of different NLP type outcomes from that customer sentiment outcomes from that, that could power some content creation around that software does an amazing job with that. Uh, so tons of use cases for you all. So we should, we should at least have you and I look at that offline. I'd love to see you guys get tired yeah. on it and take a look at it. Well, we did something really interesting. So the people who were, you know, paying, they wanted to see metrics on it, but we've got listeners at YouTube, people watching the episodes on LinkedIn from the actual podcast, you know, network, all of these different sources. And so what we did was we built a custom analytics tool and API with all the different vendors. And then we put the links so we make a customer analytics screen and we say, okay, here's when we posted these three clips, here's the newsletter posting and we suck in all of the data. So it's like one aggregate reporting function. But because of that, I mean, we know all the people that like the stuff, all the people that, there's, we have so much data on that side. And then on the other side, we have, you know, here's who we're reaching out to. Um, we have all of this data, we do nothing with it. And we're reaching out to like, you know, thousands of people a week and setting meetings and 
I'm sure there's insights in all of this sales data and all of our CRM, things like that, about maybe locations that do better. Um, if we plugged in like our sales close data and to, you know, maybe help us figure out what areas to focus on or what category, there's all of this stuff. Yeah, I get it. I get it. That's a lot of our, that's a lot of our DNA is around, uh, if you're a Walmart of the world, you use us to identify where to put a store, right? Um, mm. uh, but we've done a lot more of that in the digital f- front as well. Uh, taking these digital inputs in and understanding where to do ad placements and such like that. Uh, we've got a lot of predictive analytics tools that are pretty accessible in the tool as well. Uh, so I think it'd be a really interesting thing, at least to get you guys a copy of the software, have you take a look at it, um, help you run through some use cases and see if it would make some sense for you. I have a hard time believing it wouldn't given what you told me around the amount of data and the types of data you ingest and what you're trying to accomplish with that data. It feels like it would be a really great fit for you all. Yeah. And I know like I typically advise people like have your outcome first. Don't like just play with tools. But at the same time, I get paid to play with tools. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I need to know what's going on out there because it gives me exciting stuff to talk about. And then I can connect people because people share all the time. You know, I'm we're doing hundreds of these a year and people will tell me that they're having problems in this area or that area, whether it's on the podcast or off the podcast. And me being able to connect people just adds value to them, right? So yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about security, right? So I did this interview with a guy named Jason, who's the CISO at High Trust. I didn't realize how big of a company High Trust was because so mm-hmm. many people have since like mentioned High Trust to me. And I was like, oh, okay. So it's a very large company in that area. But um, we were talking about security. We were talking about, you know, organizational strategy. Then you earlier were asking me about, uh, or you were bringing up you know, we had COVID change that made a lot of changes. That's changed a lot of people's security. You've got, you know, this new chief product officer, you've got this awesome team over there growing and constantly increasing the size of the company. How do you guys handle security? Do you have a special person for this? Do you have a CISO? How do you think about security? Yeah, we, uh, when I first got to Alteryx, I was handed uh, too much. Uh, it was, I own security. I owned uh, IT, I own engineering, I own uh, licensing at one point, I own uh, the EPMO function for kind of cross-organizational initiatives. Uh, one area that I said, hey, I don't have a ton of deep pedigree in, that is a very bespoke area of security. I made a hard pitch back then to say, we need to bring in, given we're an analytics company, we look at data, uh, we need to bring in somebody who's very specific to a CISO type role that really drive that functionality. So um, God, when was it? A year ago or so? Uh, we brought in Billy Spears. He's our CISO. Uh, fantastic. Tons of industry pedigree around how to do that role in our specific industry space in our kind of technology domain. Uh, he's been fantastic. We've had to work on the relationship between... You know, he obviously will own the, the corporate security governance, BCP side of things, right? Uh, but then there's the, the injection of that into the product security and how do we think about product security much more proactively. We talk about moving things like quality left in the process, right? How do I address quality concerns early in the process? Because as you know, being in software, the later you deal with the quality issue, the more expensive it is to deal with. Order of magnitude worse for security issues. So our intent was how do we work with our CISO now to, to move more of those security concerns farther left? We've done a, a good job of getting kind of static code analysis, dynamic code analysis, uh, all that type of stuff into our code base. He's been driving a ton of that effort to make sure that security is a 
first-class citizen and how we create software. A lot of times people see security in the product space as being something that slows you down. The one thing I really appreciate about Billy as a partner is he he doesn't want to be that person that's saying, hey, we can't get product to market fast enough because security is this wall between ourselves and our customer. He is highly conscious of making sure that he's not an inhibitor to the process. Uh, and that has been a great partnership to have. So now when we talk to customers, he just wrote a white paper I think we published around our stance with security, but now we're leading more and more with our stance on security, how we test. Uh, we are going after some FIP certification for one of our products as well. Uh, we're beginning to lead with that as a differentiator, especially as we move our technology to the cloud. We know that that's an important decision criteria uh, for a lot of technical decision makers is how, how much security first are you uh, when you create your software, when you manage and, um, and operate your software, we got to do a much better job of that, especially going forward. Now that he's in seat, we can do that. When it was me in seat with that, I was doing my best to do it, but I didn't bring his pedigree into the role. And that's just, an, I know it's an acknowledgement of, hey, this is not an area of expertise for me. I need to bring in somebody who's an amazing leader in this space to really drive this function. And that's what he's done. And he's been a, a, a really good partner to work with. Uh, maybe that's an exception. I'm sure a lot of people don't have that relationship with their CISO. Maybe it is more adversarial. In my case, I've got a great relationship with our CISO and it's mutually beneficial. Yeah, I'm spoiled because I get to talk to all these awesome leaders and then I get to pick up on the trends and the the great CISOs. I don't know a ton about them, but I know that one of the 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 brilliant talking points in that space are the, the CISOs that are enabling the organization and not being a barrier. And so uh, that's sound like you sounds like you've got a really awesome person then. Yeah, for sure. And I think it was that was something that I think I a CIOs face too. If you remember even 15 years, 10, 15 years ago, CIOs always had the reputation for you know being an inhibitor to business velocity. Their charter changed. They became very focused on you know being business enabling and, and value accretive uh, versus just being a cost center. I'm guessing a lot of CISOs have taken that same mentality when it comes to their role. Uh, nobody wants to be an organizational inhibitor, and especially the pace of business that we have today, and in tech especially. Uh, I'm sure that they've kind of taken that charter forward as well in their roles, and that's good because if we had CISOs or in these kind of ancillary organizations, legal, data privacy, and protection, and they were inhibitors, like that's not good for our customers in the end. It's not good for our business either. And I think it's been good that these folks are taking a much more enabling, you know, perspective on their roles. Yeah, I agree. It's we all kind of snap snapped to it too because what we saw was all of these businesses that were household names like go out of business <laughs> because they didn't move fast and because they didn't you know they weren't nimble and didn't watch the market and so that kind of woke everybody up to instead of being the command and control version of the you know 70s 80s management you know everyone turned into let's be a team player and just put the best ideas forward and bring value to the marketplace. And that that becoming a trend is an awesome thing. Yeah, everybody benefits from that. So what are you, I want to know what you're learning like right now as a leader. We talked about the tech, the transformation we're going through. Uh, you know, one thing I love about this is I'm getting to, I will call it mo further modernize my own personal skill set. I've loved that. Uh, so I get to learn much more around new tech that I wasn't as familiar with getting you know, AWS certified, doing that type of stuff, even as a CTO, because I want to understand where we're going at a much more intimate level than you know, a lot of times, a lot of you know, large organization CTOs 
which I'm fortunate enough to be, you don't get time to spend uh, in the de- technical detail, but this transformation is requiring me to. So I, I'm benefiting from this transformation. Um, so learning more around those technologies has been great. Uh, taking an organization through the change has been great. We, we restructured how we approach quality in our, uh, in our software. One way we used to do that legacy-wise is we were very manual testing oriented. You got to remember, Alteryx is, is, has been around a long time. Uh, our original version of designer hit the market early 2000s. So it's been in the market for like 15 years. Back then, manual testing was kind of the norm or much more the norm. Uh, and so the institutional way of thinking around the value of automation, et cetera, it wasn't as acute because our deployment base was small. We were a small organization. So manual testing wasn't that heavy of a lift. Well, you know, now we're in excess of 400-ish you know, engineers the organization's really large. That 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 surface area of testing is is gigantic. If you're still doing manual regression testing, that what does that do to your cycle time? It kills it, right? You can't cycle stuff out. Your quality suffers. When I got here, I was trying to institute trend change towards more automation. You know, it, what I ended up doing was you know serving as a forcing function because it wasn't going fast enough. It wasn't preparing us for that next stage of growth. Uh, was really taking us through a what I call a burning the boats moment, right? We kind of burn the boats on being able to go back and rely on manual testers. You know, we had to make some hard people choices around either rescaling folks or moving folks out around that decision. But it had to be a thing that said, hey, there's nobody to turn to to do your testing for you anymore. It's you. And you're, you're a developer. And so you're in a lead with solving things through development, which is through automation. So we had to work to take the organization through that change. A lot of my time is really focused on executing the change and having all sorts of successes and failures and trying to do that in different aspects of the business, but learning about how to do it better. Because I have a lot of history in the change space. You know, history doesn't equate to success, right? I think everybody says, hey, I've done that before. I kind of know how to do it. Every organization is different. Every culture is different. And understanding that you're going to make a ton of mistakes in the change process and learning from those and, and refining your style to fit the culture or dynamic that you have at this company has been a huge learning experience for me because doing a change in some organizations, like when we did some big stuff at the Gates Foundation many years ago, very different process than doing it at Alteryx, right? Very different business, very different culture. One organizational change process does not work in both. You got to refine that process. I've had to go through some hard knocks on the Alteryx side around saying, hey, that doesn't work here. You got to rethink how you approach that change process. And that's been really fun for me. I love that dynamic of it. The tech's great. Love the tech, learning a ton. Spent all my mornings learning tech. That's fantastic. Where I really get juice is, is taking organizations through a transformation. This is a great opportunity to do that. Uh, and this specific opportunity has, has been a huge lesson for me in terms of how to think about these harder changes. Uh, and I've had all sorts of goods and bads that have come from that. Yeah, what sort of uh, people insights did you get from executing this, this change from no manual testing? Well, you know, one thing because of the people dynamic is we weren't able to really bring in a lot of our leaders to the conversation because there was a, you know, there was a difficult people dynamic to think through. And we didn't want the, the knowledge of some of those hard decisions to be more distributed. So we had to like leave some leaders out. So some folks left behind that the change was, do, was done to them versus with them. Uh, so I think we'd rethink how to maybe do that in the future in the right way. Uh, that was something that I learned, especially in the process. Didn't identify as as many quick wins that we probably needed to, at least quick wins that were really tangible to the person that was impacted. They felt tangible to us, uh, but that person that was impacted, the developer now who has to completely own their testing, uh, they were kind of left a little bit holding the bag on 
understanding how to get to success really quickly. So we had to pivot and really think about creating more explicit test strategies for specific domains, uh, products, and providing interim milestones that felt like success that were very achievable uh, to give them very distinct ideas of, hey, if you can do X by Y, that's success. You don't need to get to the end state in the next you know, X amount of months. Let's incrementally work our way to where we want to be. We need to be much more intentional around those you know, what's in it for me type moments for the developers. And I don't think we did as good of a job in that as we probably could have. But you learned. That's the beauty of it, right? You always learn. I, you know, you always hope that you've earned enough organizational trust before those events. You, you know, you're going to take a withdrawal, right? Any change journey is a withdrawal. And the hope is you've made enough deposits that you're not going bank. You're not emptying the bank account by doing it. We felt like maybe we were close enough that we could take that withdrawal and have a learning. We had fully admitted this isn't a fully big process, but if we don't burn the boats, we may never change. We have to burn the boats. So we, we burn the boats uh, and it hurt a lot more than we have liked it to. But sometimes you have to really force the change. I'm hugely confident that, you know, by kind of, you know, September of this year, it'll be you know roughly 10 or so months. Like people will be like, why did we ever work that way? Like that, that way it made no sense. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the 10 months before that were easy. Uh, and I think just having an appreciation and acknowledgement for it, this isn't easy. Uh, it's going to suck at times. Uh, it's okay. We're going to get through it and we're going to get to a really good end state and being consistent with that message. I can always do a better job with that. I try to do really can be consistent with that. You know, let's go, let's go. It's all good. We're going to get there and you know, have faith message, but uh, you know, people have to have faith still. And you hope that again, your political capital is high enough for your relationship capital that people will to continue to believe it. And you can, you can feel it too. When you go into organizations, whether you're a guest there or it's your own organization, you can kind of feel the sentiment and how much, uh, or I love that you use that. What did you call it? Like organizational capital or how did you, per, how did you, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's changed. It's relationship capital. A lot yeah. of it, right. You got to have that bank account. If you don't have the bank account, you can't ask for withdrawals. And I tried to work to put enough stuff in the bank to make a, you know, a withdrawal ask. I'm sure some fun, some folks that were all for it was a very small withdrawal. Some folks that were, it was a huge impact. Probably I took a huge personal kind of withdrawal from that bank account, but you have to make the deposits uh, before you can do these types of things. And that's something that I hope that we did a good enough job in this one, uh, but we'll continue to learn over the next you know handful of months as we continue to change journey. Over communicating, do you find that important? Like constantly reiterating and discussing the change and why you're doing it and where we want to go? Yeah, I, I, you know, this is an area that I, I, I was very clear on when I announced the change. I, I, it was my my desire to drive it. My leaders were very much on board with wanting to do it. So at the end of the day, what I love about the leadership team I'm fortunate enough to lead is, is they raise their hands and this is our decision. This isn't Derek's. It's ours. Like we need to change, which I love. And then we've been trying to be really consistent. We took one of my leaders uh, and we said, hey, this is a smaller thing to focus on. You need 100% focus on this one activity because it's that important. And a big part of his communication is continually talking about where we are on the change journey. Uh, we were on a call this morning with our delivery leadership uh, chapter talking about you know, where we're at in that journey. He's really, really consistent at this communication. I think that helps. It helps to, to hear and see that. Uh, we're, we're in the kind of trough of disillusionment in terms of where we're at with the change. So, but it feels like we're kind of on the upslope coming out of it. Uh, but you're going to have that trough as you're going through a change. You just have to be okay and recognize it and know that there's upside coming out of that. He's helped mitigate some of the, the depth of the trough, let's say. So you've got this new CPO, you've got an awesome CISO, 
The team is growing. You guys are building amazing product. You're switching from man or you switched, you burn the boats from manual testing to now you're doing automation based testing, which was a big change, you know, for me when I first saw the other developers, cause I was self-taught when I saw some of the, the best developers that started buying their books and watching their videos, I saw that they were all testing and me making that switch was personally difficult and it didn't happen the first time I tried to switch to like a test driven first development process, probably about three or four times before I got frustrated enough to where one day I said, I'm just going to do it. Right. It's like working out. It's like <laughs> you try so yeah. many times and then you're just like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to commit. And, uh, but after you do that, it's just like, why did I ever, and now every time I see somebody that's writing code, that's not test driven, I want to like sell them on the <laughs> life change that they'll experience if they do TDD. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've talked about that internally around it. If you want to refactor, what do you do? If you don't test around it, like you, you can't refactor. You don't know if, if like we wanted to do some large transformational stuff around our engine. Well, how do that's a core piece of IP. You, and it's got, you know, 20 years of legacy in it. If, if it doesn't have good sets of automation taste cases around it and you start entering the refactoring exercise, how do you know you're creating the same outcomes? With the testing surface being enormous, you can't if it's manual. Yeah, the answer is you don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's a horrible answer. And I think that's what we did is we had a couple of folks have really good success saying, I did automation and I had to go through a refactoring for whatever reason. And I, I had something to fall back on that I knew that if I, my test passed, it, was, it, was satis it will satisfy the same uh, outcome expectations that it, it needs to solve. It's solved yesterday. will solve, will be solved tomorrow. And then people are like, Oh, I, I get it now. It's not just because I'm checking a quality box. It's because I, as a developer get value in terms of freedom to do that type of refactoring when I need to, knowing that I've got this backstop of automation to turn to. Oh man, dude, whenever I meet really interesting people like you, <laughs> I'm always curious, like what was their childhood? Like, <laughs> uh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, I'm trying to relate it to our conversation. Oh, you don't uh, have to. <laughs> you, you are the conversation. What was life like as what's eight-year-old Derek like? <laughs> well, I was my was mother-led. Let's let's put it that way. I uh, kind of got a higher bar, higher expectation. Uh, I think that shaped a lot of who the way I, I think about uh, the problems I solve is for sure. Yeah, you know, parents didn't have a ton when I grew up. So I think you 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 know they had a high expectation of us despite not having a lot. And I think that really resonated with me. You have a huge appreciation for that kind of post-process with your parents, like when you're out of school and you're kind of on your own life and you look back and say, I wouldn't be I'm sure everybody feels like this who've had really positive influences as parents, is I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for kind of the mindset you and you know you you put me in as I was growing up right? Where you made sacrifices so we would have an opportunity. And I saw that. And so I tried to take advantage of those opportunities because you were making those sacrifices. I think that kind of created this, this ever hungry element that I think I, I like to think I continue to have where I'm always eager to learn and, and learn from bad experiences and progress my own skill set and do more, experience new things. I think that's a huge part of it is, you know, you got an opportunity to do that as a kid because your parents made those sacrifices. Well, now I got to go and take advantage of that. Dude, I love that. I've never heard that term. Did you say mother-led? Is that the Mother-led. Yeah. It hits home perfectly. So we were poor, but we, we, we shortly got out of that. Like that was like early on in my year. And then my dad built some technology. And so we, we definitely got, you know, to middle class, right. Which was, which was a huge change for us. Like looking back as a kid, you're going through it. You really don't know or care. 
you're just like, this is life. And I go to school and you know, you're a kid. But the one trait that like stood out to me when you said mother led was while we were like that and uh, the rest of our family was like that as well. We were all pretty poor, like the uncles and aunts and everything. My mom was like always putting us up, like always had just this huge expectation um, and never wanted, you know, never wanted help right she wanted to be seen that like we were like doing well and everything like that and she always like looked forward like that and so when you said mother led i was like oh do this must be a trend other moms must must have this like personality where they 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 want to push things forward yeah you know whether it's mother led or father just having somebody you can look to that role models and expectation i feel my joke with my wife all the time she's always she'll give me a thing i'll never be your mom i'll never be your mom Right. Cause my mom, I, you know, a lot of folks put their mother on a pedestal or your father, whatever so that association with you, put them on a pedestal in terms of, I mean, what they could do in a day, the horse, this raw horsepower they had, it was amazing. My mom was off the charts uh, on horsepower. She'd wake up, you know, at 5 a.m. and she'd be the last to sleep at one and she wouldn't sleep much and she would grind. There was never sitting around on the couch doing nothing, reading a book. It was go, 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 go. That wired a ton of who I am. I think that's a frustration that I think the people I work with sometimes, and I know my family have, is like, you never stop. Like, uh, and that's not a good thing, I would say at times. Like, you need to learn to like take peace and take a breath and smell the roses a little bit. Uh, but that's definitely from my mother because that's the way she was wired. It was always what's next, what's next, what's next. Well, dude, it's in your DNA. Yeah, I would say it's sometimes unhealthily in my DNA. We're made by overemphasize on that, but at least I self-recognize maybe trying to get better about that. Uh, I can't remember. Do you have kids? I do. I've got two kids, one eleven and one thirteen. How are they doing? They're doing fantastic. They they're back at school full time, uh, which I think a lot of sounds like a lot of states are getting back in school. We live in Colorado, uh, so normality is returning. I think to some extent. Uh, we live next to a, a speedway. I drove by it the other day, and they actually had a bunch of people in the stands, which was an anomaly to see. You know, people attending a, an event. Um, you know, sports games are opening up attendance well. Uh, but my kids are doing great. They've, you know, kids are resilient and stuff like this. Uh, they learn to adjust from working from home. My daughter was extremely proficient. My son drifted at times, like they'll try and sneak in TV or goof off and didn't really focus on his studies. But I think they all learned how to be successful, just like we all did. They kind of learn how to adjust because we're humans and that's what we do. They learn how to adjust to uh, revise expectation and they both thrived with it. I do think they're both excited to be back at school full time. It's hard as a kid not having that social interaction. I can only imagine if you're a, a senior in high school or something, yeah, and it's your last year and you don't get to like really soak in your senior moment, that would be terrible. Luckily, my kids are 11 and 13, and so that wasn't what we faced, but I can only imagine how hard that would be for people that are in these, like, these, com- these kind of inflection points in their life, like graduating high school and not getting a chance to enjoy that or graduating college and not getting a chance to like, enjoy that last year in person. That had to be a, a tough one. Yeah, but I think it's going to create some some stronger people, though. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt that at all. Uh, I think the dynamic of education, I think with COVID especially, I, I'm curious to see how that plays out over the next handful of years. You know, virtual learning is it was a forcing function now because of uh, COVID. Uh, so now, what's it going to look like? What's the traditional institutional education process going to look like? It's it's going to be inter- It's already gotten pressure. Uh, COVID probably provided more pressure to it. So how does how do the institutions adjust to it? Not sure what that eventually is going to look like, but you have to know that they're going to have to make some adjustments. I can't remember exactly who it is, but I saw a LinkedIn post 
maybe even like the CTO of Ohio State University or just some some big university, right? Where they had like 20,000 plus students. And I saw that they, within like two or three weeks of COVID, they had to, their entire tech department had to put the entire university from in-person classes to online classes. And he wrote this blog article about it, but at the time he was getting so much, like it was so chaotic in his life that in the moment of the incident, it's like when everything takes off, that's not when Harry from Zoom is going to come on. He's going to come on like four months later and talk about the whole process because everyone was in this all hands exercise. So I'm, I'm still waiting on that interview, but I, I was curious to see how they, they turned and transitioned within like two or three weeks, an entire university oh. system from in-person to online. Cause I think that'd be a fascinating story. Yeah, I, I would I'll make sure I listen to that one. That I would love to hear that story. It wasn't that hard for well, like a lot of traditional corporate uh, corporations who had at least some footprint in you know virtual meeting, especially if you're a global company for sure. But I don't think it was it was probably more the exception, not the norm, not to to not have it. Uh, but for an educational, you know, kind of an institutional education uh, organization where maybe a small portion of your classes are a little more virtual or you can attend virtually. Now you're going full virtual to maintain some level of momentum around your institution. That had to be a super hard problem to solve and an expensive one, right? You don't, oh, you don't plan yeah. for that in your budget. Um, could you imagine the zoom or teams or what have you cost of that, of that, you know, that endeavor, that would be substantial. Yeah. It's unfactored in their business model. Right. And they're still having their costs from their buildings and all of that yep, or in person business away. model. Right. And then on top of that, one of the big ones that was pretty transparent to me, my wife had finished her last class. Like she had three or four weeks of, you know, her last credit or class uh, right when COVID had started. And I remember her teacher like couldn't figure out how to use Zoom because we're professionals and meeting we've done a Zoom meeting before, even before the pandemic, at some point people have done some form of video meeting. You have a general idea of how it goes, but these teachers have literally like never done one before. And so they were like trying to figure out, do we live stream on YouTube? Do we do a Zoom <laughs> call? How does the Zoom features work? How do I engage with my class like this? So it was a, a hard education thing to teach the teachers how to do this. And then yeah, the business model. So I'm super, super interested to figure out how they how they did that at a major university. One thing yeah. I wanted to touch with you on though is you personally, like what are you really excited about in the future? Like AI, self-flying cars, self-driving cars, like what are you what are you geeking out about? Uh, that's a good question. Um, on the tech side, uh, you know, given the space we're in, I spent a lot more time thinking about the space we're in. Uh, the explainable AI stuff is really interesting. Uh, we What's that? we talked a lot about that internally. Uh, trying to get quicker, especially as you democratize data science, how do you generate quicker time to insight? You know, part of that is access to the data, right? And, and companies like Snowflake are trying to solve that, right? Hopefully that is a more solvable problem in the near term. Then there's the tooling side where Alteryx plays really well uh, in the tooling side of it. And there's education to that where we were spending a lot of our time on, on elevating the, the, the capability of the knowledge worker. Uh, but then there's the time to insights piece. Is yeah okay? I know that how to like manually go through the 15 steps to generate an insight. I don't have time to do 15 steps. So how do I get to an insight quicker? So we we are seeing in our industry an emergence of all these auto solutions, right? You know whether it's auto ML, whether it's auto insights, where I'm you know I'm I'm presenting data into a, a machine that's giving me like prescriptive analytic outcomes. Well, based on this data, here's what you should go do. 
Uh, you're seeing a lot more squishing of the time to value uh, happening. Uh, but then what comes out of that is, well, that's great, but then how do I trust the data? It's one thing when something says, hey, here's a, you know, a Netflix movie recommendation. That's kind of a low risk thing to engage in if it's wrong. Uh, if it's an underwriting activity or insurability decision, you can't just fire and forget and be like, well, the model told me that's the answer. So we either shouldn't give this person a loan or we shouldn't. Like that's not acceptable right now. And so watching organizations trying to understand uh, how to deal with the dimensions of explainability, I think is one that's really interesting. And then watching the, the, the race to get there the quickest, that's where the TAM in, in our industry is at, right? The total addressable market, it's a huge TAM. You know, it's, I think, 15 billion or something. But I would tell you 80% of that is, is, is around taking the knowledge worker and giving them kind of these auto insight capabilities. But at the end of the day, if I don't know anything about AIML and I'm trying and I use one of these tools and I generate a decision and that decision is a, it's an impactful decision like a loan or underwriting or a, uh, insurability or something that is impactful, but I don't know it. And I want to go to my boss and get an approval on a decision, but I don't understand how the decision was made. That's a big deal. Like as a, as a leader, how am I going to trust that that's a good decision if you can't explain it? So the explainability side of the AI space is fascinating. You know, there's a ton of dimensions to that space in terms of how to approach that problem, whether it's explainability or interpretability, uh, all that stuff is really, really important. So we're watching folks like ourselves that are trying to figure out how do I execute this path much more quickly? We, we have kind of forked our investment. One is, is making the tools more accessible, increasing the knowledge uh, so folks can understand the process of creating analytical outcomes. Uh, but there's also a tool-oriented thing, kind of a, an AI for AI. I know I, I created a, a set of ensemble models that produce some analytical outcome. Then I run an AI model over the top of that that says, is there bias in this? Like am I biasing against uh, race, gender, et cetera, and the outcomes? And so your AI model then looks at your other AI models and tries to understand, is there bias? Uh, you're seeing a lot more investments like on that. So you're seeing AI stacked on AI to drive things like explainability, interpretability, et cetera. Uh, and I think that's a super fascinating field for us in our space. Yeah, because when you're talking, I'm thinking about all of these different use cases that you're, you know, loan origination, maybe something in like the legal field, right? Do you get any into any of like partner? I don't know how to say this, like maybe a partner network or maybe where you've got people who are in the law category or in the underwriting category, like helping you shape the insights for when it's being used for underwriting? I do think what you're seeing now is a verticalization, right? So you're seeing verticals come up with maybe more curated ways of, of answering underwriting questions where, you know, not everybody's having to figure out explainability or fairness or interpretability on every single model, but there's a handful of, of kind of bespoke but highly curated models on a per industry basis that, you know, well, that work has been done for you. So you're not having to go do all that work yourself. So if it's a deep neural network or something that, you know, I've done my my ML education. You know, even you know a lot of folks I know that are strong in this space don't understand how to look at uh, neural networks because uh, it's really sophisticated math. So how do we create a common way for folks to understand? Hey, these X amount of models are very consistent in the underwriting industry. They generate really strong uh, outputs in terms of you know high correlation between the inputs and creating really tangible outputs. Uh, how do I create explainability, interpretability, you know, fairness explanations around that? I think you're seeing a trend towards that because trying to generalize that across 
every scenario for every model is, you know, it's an extremely difficult task right now because the tools don't exist for it. I can't, you know, take a set of AI outcomes and hand it to an, a tool and say, you know, generate explainability, interpretability, et cetera, for me, because I don't know how to do that. That tool doesn't exist today. So the only way you solve that in the near term is by being very specific to say, I'm answering a underwriting question. Here are the X amount of models I'm going to use because these dominate kind of the predictive analytics outcomes. And I'm going to make sure that for these X amount of models, I can answer all those questions. That may be more manual than it is automated right now. But if you can do at least that, you're kind of meeting in the middle in terms of explainability. Well, you created a whole new class of jobs. It's like you created this tool that now needs, like it's got this, these insights, but now it needs these vertical specific insights about the insights and you kind of like layers on top of each other. Yeah, it would be beautiful if there was this AI that could, you could just say, I mean, the equivalent of go make me money or, or go generate insights and explain this other AI, but it's just going to take stacking of human knowledge workers learning how to do this because that will become its own craft. Like, designing the systems for those insights or the messages that you send on how you explain and interpret this stuff will become its own craft. Eventually there's going to be a book on it or something of that nature. Yeah. I think if you go to, you know, Google's website or, you know, the data robot H2O, they all have now, you know, explicit blurbs on explainability, how they're approaching. I think some folks have written books on how to, how to approach this type of problem. Uh, none of them say, hey, I've got the magic, you know, the magic button. You hit this button on a model and it gives it all to you. So I think there is, to your point, there's some knowledge stacking that's going to have to occur to get us there, especially as you continue to democratize, you know, this tooling to more and more people, especially the information worker who has no, you know, statistical uh, background, no linear algebra background, doesn't really understand what's being created. Like you have to have that. If you want to really maximize access in that TAM, you have to, and that's that democratized user base, you have to make it explainable. Otherwise, they, they can't engage in it because I won't trust that decision because you don't know how it was made, right? Uh, I'm not going to risk my business on a decision that was generated by some machine if you can't explain how it was made. So I think that's really the gold, the holy grail of that whole space, uh, that auto ML space is that, is that explainability um, aspect of it. And we're just not there today. We've made so much progress in this space over the last three years uh, you got to believe in the next three years, we'll have something out there that does a, you know, at least a decent job of this and is much more automatable. Well, hopefully, or maybe one day you'll uh, like crack the consciousness code and all of a sudden the computer will start talking to you and oh, man. <laughs> all, all from... some, like war game stuff. I'm not sure I want to go there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. I'll, I'll ask like, what, what can you do for me? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the scary stuff right there is the efficacy of, of automation. Oh, dude, that's that. That'll be the topic of our next conversation, man. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.